Good morning, everyone. We welcome you to our Saturday morning Bible study. We're so glad you could join us. We are still on the topic of Revelation. And Thomas is here again from the Big Apple, and he will begin. Welcome. Okay, so um, I'll start out with a poem by Mary Baker Eddy. Come down. Come in the minstrel's lay. When two hearts meet and true hearts greet, on all is morn in May, come thou and now anew to thought and deed. Give sober speed thy will to know and do. Stay till the storms are o'er, the cold blast done, the rain of heaven begun, and love thee evermore. Be patient, waiting heart. Light, love divine, is here and thine. You therefore cannot part. The seasons come and go. Love, like the sea, rolls on with thee, but knows no ebb and flow. Faith, hope, and tears triune. Above the sod, find peace in God and one eternal noon. Oh, thou hast heard my prayer, and I am blessed. This is thy high behest, thou, here and everywhere. Thank you. Thank you. Isn't he a good poetry reader? Yes. <laughs> Well, I must say, if anybody ever needed any encouragement, this poem definitely has it. So positive and good, and so confident and sure of God's ever-presence. Yeah. And love doesn't ebb and flow. The constancy of love, I love that. Yeah. Something we should always feel in our heart, you know? Well, um, did you want to say anything, Thomas? Uh, yes. Uh, so I want to point out patience. So it says, stay till the storms are o'er. So, you know, the storms, I mean, so all sorts of terrible, terrible stuff can be going on. But it says to stay, right? And then the next verse, be patient, waiting heart. So I'm just saying this is up to us to learn to be patient um, and be calm, storm. Thank you. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Very beautiful. Carrie. Oh, and one more thing. Oh, so, and then, enough. of course, we end uh, this uh, uh, topic anyway. But, um, you know, with, with our patience, you know, we are blessed. Mm -hmm. Yes, and patience means active expectancy of good, but it's active, and we're knowing it will be good. Carrie sent me this very beautiful uh, something about Mrs. Eddy's poem, Come Thou. Anyway, it was from Long Year, and it said, um, This copy of Mary Baker Eddy's then newly published 
miscellaneous writings, 1883 to 1896, was a gift to her student, Julia Bartlett, in 1897. When Julia was appointed one of the 12 first members of the recognized First Church of Christ scientist, she was the earliest of Mrs. Eddy's students still to be active, loyal, and prominent in the movement. And then, upon learning that Julia's beloved brother had passed on, Mrs. Eddy sent this volume to Julia by express. It's inscribed, To Miss Julia S. Bartlett, CSD, with love, Mary Baker Eddy, 1897. Mrs. Eddy placed the book's ribbon marker at her poem, Come Thou, and marked a, a verse for Julia's comfort. Be patient, waiting heart, light, love, divine is here and thine. You therefore cannot part. In a note, Julia said, I opened it at once where the marker was placed and saw the verse she meant me to see. The book was never used by anyone but myself and the marker never removed since she placed it there. Julia's family too never disturbed the marker. Today, the marker still remains on the page where Mrs. Eddy placed it. So, so this was, I hope I read that part. It was when her beloved brother had passed on that Mrs. Eddy sent this to her. Yeah, <laughs> that makes Chardell cry. What a sweet story. A very sweet story. And um, I thought, then it goes, I don't know, those of you who read... Um, Kratzer about the resurrection and it's in it's in the chapter 19 of Revel, Revelation and he, he says it's kind of interesting uh, as those here and those there meaning those that have passed on work and demonstrate their way toward the same truth they will demonstrate their way more and more toward the one Christ consciousness and finally they will do this to such an extent that there will be no difference between their states of belief because they have come into the one consciousness. At this point, the difference of belief, which is so long separated those here from those there, will be broken down, and they will all seem to be together in one place on a glorified earth and perhaps on an enlarged sense of the earth. When those there thus come visibly into the presence of those here, it will appear to those here like a resurrection of the dead. So I thought that was an interesting interpretation of, of that. This goes to show death is not real. There is no death. Well, that's it. And as we progress and progress in our understanding, well, Mrs. Eddy says things that we couldn't see before, we will now see. We will see as we progress in our understanding of the truth. And why not? There is no death. It's certainly hopeful. <clears throat> Are you proving that in this moment? Yeah. So, makes yeah. sense. And the last line, four lines of this poem is what Mrs. Eddy put at the beginning of Science and Health. Oh, yeah. oh yes, that's right. Thank you. That's amazing. Yeah, no, that was an important point. Thank wow. you. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. I think Carrie sent a, another article where Mrs. Eddie had put it in the children's card she sent them, one of the verses. Oh, yeah. Too. So that poem has been well loved and used and given. Oh, I didn't know that. This is a very important poem. Yes, it's a very important poem. <laughs> yeah. And and I think some of it has to do with that Mrs. Eddy uh, did have to say goodbye to so many people she loved, you know. Um, yeah. That meant so much to her. A lot of her poems, she's working that sense of sadness out. Well, she wrote this one poem about her departed husband, Asa Eddy. Relating how, after he deceased, he met Mary Baker Eddy's mother, Abigail Baker. And it was a very happy and joyous meeting. The meeting of my mother and my departed husband. I think that's what the poem is called. And when she went on and on about what a joyous meeting that was. <laughs> obviously, Mrs. Eddy had the perception to grasp that this occurred. And I remember she also said that they were able to find each other because they both loved her. Uh -huh. So it isn't strange or mysterious. Even Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. So it points to something. That's a fundamental fact about life itself. Yes. Yes. So thank you, Tom. Good good choice. <laughs> okay, so our topic taken from the poem we just discussed. I am left. So very positive. You know, I I like that topic because um Whatever troubles may be out there, we are already blessed. That's a fact. Right. Thank you. That's, that's a fact. Um, so before we get into the questions, I want to do a recap again, because we've done this before, but I think it's useful. The uh, seven steps of the metaphysical analysis of the revelation as given by Tomlinson. So he says in vision one, the statement of the truth of being. Vision two, the denial of error and the affirmation of truth. Vision three, demonstrating the nothingness of matter and the allness of spirit. Vision four, the first three steps prepare thought to receive the revelation of Christian science. Vision five, resistance to the revelation of Christian science. And that's what we discussed in the last Bible study. Vision six, which is today's Bible study. Resistance vanishes with the demonstration of Christian science. Vision seven. The demonstrations of Christian science make the truth of being manifest in consciousness. Thank you. Any thoughts on the metaphysical analysis by Thomason? No, good summary. Good, yeah, an ascending scale. And here we are, vision six. 
Okay, um, so I thought we would actually start out with question two, and then and then we can get into other lessons found in Vision Six. Okay, so question two, chapter thirteen tells us about the terrible beast with power over all people that made war with the saints. So that's in chapter thirteen. Now. However, in vision six, it says to praise God. So anyway, chapter 13 is very depressing and glooming. And, and, but yet vision six says we should be praising God. So why should we be praising God? Acknowledging the supremacy of God. Yeah, that gloominess yeah. and depression is not the truth. Yeah, because there's nothing else to praise that's real. And, and you know, what you said a few minutes ago, that despite everything, we, we are blessed. Go I ahead. There are two examples. I'm sorry, Mary. No, go ahead. <laughs> okay. um, I was also, when I read that, I was thinking of how Jesus, before he raised, before he raised Lazarus, he thanked God that, um, thank you for, you know, he knew that he was, he had already heard his prayer that he was already alive and there was no death and he was thanking God, um, for his goodness before raising Lazarus. And then a few weeks ago in our lesson about Jehoshaphat and how everybody Went off to war, singing and praising God before they would had, before they even encountered anything. That's what, how they started. So I thought those were two examples of um, where we should start. <laughs> Many things, thanking God first. <laughs> well, yeah, and and does anything other than Christian Science teach us that that is the way to start every day every experience that we have no. and and no. that is the way that we should deal with every challenge that comes to us no i mean it's, yeah. only, it's only the revelation of christian science that says this that this is the way to, to live and it, it all stems from from gratitude in order to really truly feel it you need to be grateful not not for the gifts, but for the giver of the gifts, God, and to really, really feel it in your heart. It is, a, it is a divine state. Gratitude is a divine state. If you're not grateful, you're in the human mind. The human mind always focuses on what is wrong, and you'll never get out of it because that's what it does until you, until you <laughs> smack yourself out of it and, and start counting your blessings. Yeah, because the error can't get you out of the error. <laughs> also, um, I found in Reverend, Tom, Reverend Tomlinson's um, Vision 6, he quotes Zephaniah, quote, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. And if this is what God is doing as reflection, isn't this what we should be doing? Yes. 
It just reminded me, Bicknell Young said, if anything's true of singing, then everyone is singing. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And we've we've seen those examples, too, of people who've just gathered together and began to sing in, in face of grave danger. Like there's one in particular of children in a elementary school or something and a tornado was coming their way and they began singing hymns and they were untouched. The mighty power praising God, especially in unity. I found some really interesting things. These are from various commentaries, mainly um, mainly Spurgeon, but um, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. This wonderful word, borrowed from Hebrew, occurs four times in Revelation 19, but nowhere else in the New Testament. It belongs here because God's people rejoice without restraint at his victory over Babylon. Alleluia is Hebrew for praise the Lord, saying it in the imperative sense. It is an encouragement and an exhortation to praise the Lord. Some seem afraid of saying Alleluia, but we'll all be saying it in heaven. It's such a wonderful word that we should never use it without thinking. Anselm of Canterbury considers it an angelic word, which cannot be fully reproduced in any language of man, and concurs with Augustine that the feeling and saying of it embodies all the blessedness of heaven. And then um, talks about the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings. This is obviously loud, enthusiastic praise. While it is certainly possible to praise and worship a self-indulgent focus on our feelings or a disorderly expression of the flesh, there is nothing wrong with loud, enthusiastic prayer. And while there is something precious and irreplaceable about quiet times alone with God, there is also something absolutely thrilling about a large number of Christians worshiping God with sincere enthusiasm. I think this is partly why I love all that beautiful, holy music like the Messiah. And then we ought not to worship God in a half-hearted sort of a way, as if it were now our duty to bless God. But we felt it to be a weary business, and we would get through it as quickly as we could and have done and be done with it. And the sooner the better. No, no. Quote, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Come, my heart, wake up and summon all the powers which wait upon thee. Mechanical worship is easy but worthless. Come, rouse yourself, my brother. Rouse thyself, O my soul. Spurgeon. Now that's giving yourself the slap I'm talking about. And that's why, re, you know, singing our hymnals, sometimes singing it as loud as you can. It doesn't matter whether you can sing or not. And then all Christian duties should be done joyfully, but especially the work of praising the Lord. I have been in congregations where the tune was so dolorous to the very last degree, where the time was so dreadfully slow that one wondered whether they would ever be able to sing through the 119 Psalm, whether, to use Watts' expression, 
Eternity would not be too short from them to get through it. (laughs) (laughs) And altogether, the spirit of the people has seemed to be so damp, so heavy, so dead, that we might have supposed that they were met to prepare their minds for a hanging rather than for the blessing of the ever gracious God. (laughs) And that's Spurgeon. (laughs) And then Spurgeon again. Heaven is always heaven and unspeakably full of blessedness. But even heaven has its holidays. Even bliss has its overflowings. And on that day, when the springtide of the infinite ocean of joy shall have come, what a measureless flood of delight shall overflow the souls of all glorified spirits. We do not yet know, my beloved brethren, of what happiness we are capable. That's that like wonderful. Wall of Jericho. I can see that that could have been just real beautiful. Those sounds that you know, we don't know what it was when yes. it played the horns and the walls came down. So yes, it was a united effort, patience going around and around, and then all together. That's lovely. I, I, you see all this joy praising God. That is bringing heaven to earth. Yeah. And when you do that, it's incredible. You can see why the in that Jericho thing that where the good man's heaven is the yes hell. <laughs> that's right. You don't want to be on the opposite side of that. No, you don't. No, no, because if you're not prepared for heaven, it will feel like it will hell. Feel like hell. <laughs> but, but you know, and and only in Christian Science can you know does it make clear that we can't have heaven on earth right now. So it's not something that we have to wait for. That's it. And that's and that in our doing it, we bring into the manifestation of all doing it, because that's what this number book 19 in Revelation is about. And everyone obeying God and feeling the peace and joy that brings. And, you know, I mean, that's why things like as Mary mentioned, Handel's Messiah are, is so, you know, is so wonderfully loved. Because before Handel wrote it, he spent several days in prayer, in agony. And it literally came to him as a revelation. And he couldn't write it down fast enough when he started writing. And it came very quickly. Once once he started writing, I mean, it didn't take him long to write the whole thing. No, uh, Parthens has an article about that. It's on our website about that. It's oh, just beautiful. Right. Yeah, yeah, I don't think he ate or drank yeah. until he finished. Yeah, yeah, it was so inspired by that really? spirit of God mm-hmm. putting all those beautiful verses in the Bible to music and the beautiful chorus and, and um, Thomas's son sang Sang the Messiah at Lincoln Center, right? Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall. Yes. At, Chris, so at Christmas. His group has sung the Messiah for almost 150 years at Carnegie wow. Hall. Wow. Yeah. And it's quite amazing when you think about what you described about his writing. That is, it's long. It's very long. It's not short. The whole thing is many hours right and it also it's not just christmas it goes into the resurrection which is the part i'm not that familiar with so how, do you know how many hours did did um 
after this. Oh, it right? was a couple hours. Uh, uh, just a yeah. couple hours. Maybe yeah. it was selections then. Charles sang. Yeah. Yeah, but it's thrilling if anyone has ever it sung it. It's awesome. It's awesome. So. And and I'm so grateful. Every year it's hugely popular. So maybe we can arrange something for the Messiah next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should, we should all go into the Carnegie yeah, Hall. That would be. <laughs> we should. So. Yeah. That'd be fun. That'd be, yeah, that'd be pretty be awesome. <clears throat> Somebody's gonna have to hold on to Bruce so he doesn't jump on stage. Just like. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be back. <laughs> we'll all be singing in our chairs. Yeah. It will. But... Yes. So I want to say something about praising God. So I, I was really glad to hear all this discussion about people coming together as a group to praise God. And uh, uh, in Christian science, um, and I'm not talking about Plainfield, but, you know, there's such a sense that your uh, closeness is God is when you're in, in your room alone, sitting in your chair, studying but there's more to christian science than that and uh, we do have a couple of stories in in the bible about groups coming together there's in the old testament where uh the uh, um, uh jews had had come back from babylon and jerusalem was kind of deserted and they had to build a lot of stuff and they had um basically a church service is quite awesome um and then there's the other in acts where um, I think it was Peter and John, I think it was John, um, had to defend themselves, and they successfully did that, and then they came back, and then as a group, the community praised God, and it was, like, thunderously joyous, you know. Um, But that, to me, makes Christianity. It does. Okay? It does. I know a few years back, someone had wanted to sell our church, and I, I thought one of the many reasons why I didn't want to do that was our beautiful organ and being together and singing. And even if it's just a few of us, it's well worth that feeling. And I know all of you join us from out of town and singing of our hymns. And there's a power in that. And there's a power in doing it live and uh, not. Yeah. That's when the demonstration is. It's easy to think you're hot stuff when you're alone in your room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and it's easy to be misled. Yes. And, uh, you know, or to have the thoughts creep into you. But the second commandment that Jesus gave us is to love thy neighbor as thyself. And, you know, sometimes you need to be with your neighbor to love your neighbor. You can't always do everything for your neighbor that needs to be done when you're alone in your closet. That's a good way to start, to get your act together mentally. Well, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Exactly. In his name being the key phrase there. Yeah, Mrs. Eddie refers to it as royal solitude, but it's almost like in a mocking kind of a way. Yeah. Um, so... It's important. Jesus spent many hours alone. We know that. He went up to the mountaintop, but he also mingled with the people and was with the people. You certainly see that in The Chosen, don't you? He's mm-hmm. he's with the people, meeting their needs. Healing yeah. and teaching. Yeah, we're not, we're not hermits. And Mrs. Eddy spent those three years studying the Bible, but then she went and proved it before she did. acting like it was perfect. So She did. Okay.
Well, um, I thought I'd talk about three characters in the Bible. Okay, so um, we have uh, the dragon and the first beast and the second beast. Now, this is coming from Revelations chapter 13, so our question, right? So the dragon is Satan and uh, basically is anti-God. The uh, first beast is the Antichrist. The first beast came out of the sea. And then the second beast uh, came out of the land um, and is known as the false prophet, sometimes known as uh, the false John the Baptist. So you have the first beast is the anti-Christ Jesus, and the second beast is the uh, um, anti-John the Baptist, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the false prophet goes around and getting people to worship the first beast, basically, um, and getting them to receive the mark of the beast. So uh, th these are the sort of uh, terrible times in chapter 13, right? Um, but in uh, chapter 19, really, this is where we have the victory, because the uh, uh, first beast and the second beast are... Uh, captured, thrown in the lake of the fire, and uh, in um, Revelations 20, um, chapter 2, the dragon is seized and bound, I think, for a thousand years, but anyway, um, this is the victory over the dragon and the first beast and, and the second beast. Um, and so, anyway, um, I think it's interesting that Revelation can seem very, very confusing and complex but these are very simple, straightforward things. You know, the dragon represents Satan, the anti-God. The first beast uh, um, represents the anti-Christ uh, Jesus. And, and the second beast represents the anti-false prophet or false John the Baptist. The deceiver, right? Yeah, I guess what the mark of the beast means, you're under the beast's control, right? Yeah. The beast has yeah. you. Right. You are mesmerized. You are, yeah, you're mesmerized. You're like the. And the only way to zombie. get out from being mesmerized is to understand the unreality of the mesmerizer. And don't be. And the only way you can do that is to know what the truth is. And the only way you can know that is to study Christian science. Period. Which is what the uh, fifth. The fifth vision was all about. Yeah, and then you you become demesmerized, but also not to not to turn it on and not to look at it. You know that what was it a Greek myth about Medusa? If you looked in her eyes, you would turn to stone. <laughs> so that's how it is. You know that's why all of that uh, talk about the nameless nothing it was intended to mesmerize you. And if and if you listen to it, then yeah, you got the mark of the beast, and you were trotting along after that. But if you don't and stay demesmerized, it can't touch you. It has no power over you, but it it works to keep to get you mesmerized. And one of the one of the main ways is to get you ungrateful, or or complacent, indifferent, blah. Frightened. You're frightened, and then you become, unfrightened, fearful. Yeah. A lot of people were frightened. Yes. Oh, yeah. It definitely works through fear. Yeah. Which is why 
it's important, it's essential to praise God and, and, and to have a, at least a little bit of an idea as to what God is so that you know what you're praising. <laughs> yeah. You're praising life. You're praising truth. You're praising divine love. Yeah. <clears throat> that's, that's the love that casts out fear. Can't be fearful if you're praising God. And I, I do love the Tomlinson book where it lists all the things that Christian science triumphs over. Yeah. Resistance, lust and hypocrisy, power over the death and the grave, um, extinguishes perversions. Gog and Magog represent hostile nations, annihilates materialism. It's all Christian science that does it. Oh, well, perfect. I should read this. This is uh, just what you're saying. Okay. So this is uh, um, the seven triumphs of truth. And this is, you know, from the sixth vision. Um, so the, uh, the white horse rider, the word of God, wars victoriously. And that is Christian science triumphs over all resistance. And two, the fowls of midheaven banquet and all flesh. So that is Christian science devours all material beliefs. Then mm -hmm. three, the white horse rider takes the beast and the false prophet. Remember uh, beast one, beast two? Um, and Christian science conquers lust and hypocrisy. Number four, an angel casts the dragon into the bottomless pit. So there we go, the dragon, Satan, the Antigon. Um, and this is Christian science proves animal magnetism to be impotent nothingness. Five, the priests of God reign with Christ in the first resurrection. Christian science gives man power over death and the grave. Fire from heaven devours Gog and Magog. Christian science extinguishes its perversions. Seven, earth and heaven flee before the one on the throne. Christian science annihil annihilates materialism. So there are seven triumphs in the sixth vision. It's wonderful. Thank you. I have something for yeah, like okay. um, that. Florence? No, no, I... I just saw something in what we read which really piqued my attention, which is Christian science invites all to turn from matter to spirit. That's very, very important. Yeah, I mean, we have something to do, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> because that's the difficulty, seems um, many people, what, what you were trying to say, I'm seeing this, and you're saying to, not to say that it's there. But this is what he's saying here. Christian science invites all to turn from matter to spirit. So that's the journey. Yeah, thank you, Florence. Because there are so many people who want Christian science served to them on a silver platter, huh. right? Mm -hmm. Please give it to me easy. Make my life comfortable. And that's not what it's about. In the Kratzer book, he, he says, you know, after all these things, the, the most difficult is this overcoming this belief in matter. 
And some people will resist that, just as you said, Florence, that how, how can this not be true? It looks, you can feel it, you can taste it, you can touch it. But even Christian science even overcomes that and that resistance. Because you've got to practice it before you can understand it. You have to start living it. And then bit by bit, you say, oh, yeah, it is true. Um, matter can make no conditions over man, Mrs. Eddy says. And you will learn that to be true in your own life. And more and more, the matter uh, gets smaller and smaller. And spirit gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> and that's wonderful. So, yes. So I was thinking, uh, um, part of the reason for asking the question I did was that there's kind of a sense of overwhelmness, right? So you have the first beast who has power over everything, and the second beast going around telling everybody to worship the first beast, and then telling people to receive the mark, because then the mark makes life easier for them. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a bit overwhelming. Yes. What do I do? Do I receive the mark and worship the beast? It seems like the easy thing to do. That's well, a and, very, and it, very and it good looks point. Like there are people who are trying to do that. Very good point. Yes, it is. Right. It's just Infil accept it. Infiltrating our schools, our governments, our yep. churches, society. Yeah. No, I mean, this is not an easy task. Yeah, that's but very But nothing true. worthwhile is easy, somebody wise once told me. <laughs> and, and, you know, here to get to you, where's your expectation? Because I read about all these victories, but do I really think that's going to happen? As, as Tom says, it's so, like, overwhelming. It seems so entrenched. Our whole, All our society is based on all of this. But is anything impossible to God? We have to have great expectations that it will happen and mainly see it. You see it in your own life, then you can know it's true for all people everywhere. So just work on yourself. Um, I think some thing, go ahead. I, I was, I looked at, um, Eustace has uh, some wonderful things to say about, he has a chapter on definition of um, beast, false prophet, and dragon, which I found very helpful. Um, he says the first, a physical power, was called by John the Beast. The second, a mental power, was called by him the false prophet. These two terms stand for materiality and for mentality. But according to the allegory, and this is the point to be noted, neither of these two phenomena has the slightest power of its own. They have great authority only because it has been given to them by the third figure in the allegory, the dragon. The dragon is that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which de which deceiveth the whole world. It is hypnotic mental deceiver. In other words, malicious mental malpractice. Also, in his at the very end of his book, he has um, something specific about the beast and the false prophet. And I this I found this very helpful. She, in this is that he stated in Science of Man. He quotes. Matter held as shadow is the idea of God, but matter held as substance is a belief and error. I just thought, and, and, and then he says, you know, a shadow followed back always leads to what it is shadowing forth and brings you to its own original substance. 
it can never appear without an origin. And so I just, it, that really helped me to see that it, it's really shadowing what is really present and has substance is mind. And it, I just thought these two, um, this article at the very end of his book was so helpful in regards to this subject. Thank you. Um, yes. Thank you. It is well worth that reading. Those of you who haven't read Eustace, he speaks a lot on this and explains it. Um, it's really another another book on Revelation in a way, what Eustace says. Yeah. And, that, and, and that is what it means to turn from matter to spirit, to spiritualize your thought. You know, when you like, you know, when you look at a table, do you see a bunch of wood or do you see a, a useful invention that enables us to better serve God and mankind. You know, when you, you know, when you see food, you know, do you see calories? <laughs> do you see taste, you know, tastes or do you see God's love for you? And have gratitude for God giving you something that meets your need. Therefore, it can only bless you. In every way, it can't cause indigestion or underweight or overweight or anything. It's it can only be a blessing. But this is how we should be living our lives and making our our life a constant prayer, always. As Florence was saying, turning it all to spirit, because it is all spirit. Um, and Mrs. Eddy says something like that about doing material work. And Mrs. Eddy said, "I didn't know there was such a thing." There isn't. We're either in the spirit. And one more thing. Oh, excuse me, Mary. Sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. Well, the one one more thing he says: the whole of evil comes from not spiritualizing matter, but from materializing spirit, making that substance which is shadow, and so having a negation of mind to deal with. Well, that was. <laughs> Right. You don't give power to the table. You don't give power to the food. You don't give power to the material thing because it has no power. Once you start giving it power, then you're on the wrong track. And that's when things go sideways. Someone made an interesting comment. It's very true this week. They, they'd gotten rid of cable television. But one thing they said, and it is true, almost every commercial is drugs, right? Drugs, 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 drugs. And therefore, the bread and butter of all of these shows we watch is the pharmaceutical companies. And believe me, they do not want anything on, on the news that says the nameless nothing is a nameless nothing or that you shouldn't take a vaccine. They want it. Oh, man, you are sick and you need this drug. So just keep that in mind. Because <laughs> if, 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 the, if the show tries to do that, then, then they, their, their bread and butter gets taken away from them. So, yes, we, we must not have that mark of the beast on our forehead where we're just going blindly along and it is blindly the world is asleep dreaming away the hours mrs eddy says well i, I thought that was remarkable what you read from herbert eustace i i feel like we should include that in our notes we should uh, yeah that's a good so idea if we can get reference to what you quoted i think that would uh -huh. be excellent 
Thank Good. you. Okay. Cool. Yeah, it's in his uh, Whoso Readeth, Let Him Understand. That's the first place he really defines those. Uh, it's, um, it's on page, well, it's the bottom of page 439 in the book. And then in the very back, it's, he defines the, the, the beast, and then there's a whole section on the prophet, the false prophet. And it's just, yeah, I, I will, you know, I will send you the references when you, you ask for them. Fantastic. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Well, thank you for calling it out because it's, um, he writes a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's not just a little yeah. like, <laughs> whole yeah. book, another viewpoint of all of this. So thank you. You're welcome. It's also good. I think, you know, just interesting talking about the characters, you know, uh, um, the dragon, the first beast, uh, the second beast, or false prophet. Um, but then in uh, uh, Revelations 19, we have uh, the rider on the white horse. So if anybody wanted to comment on that, right? So One of Mary's favorite characters. That's <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite. I really, I love those verses. King of king and Lord of lords. Therefore, again, the, the Messiah. But, um, yeah, I found some interesting commentaries on that as well thank you tom (laughs) the world likes a complacent reasonable religion and so it is always ready to revere some pale galilean image of jesus some meager anemic messiah and to give him a moderate rational homage that was by a torrance now isn't that the truth that's why mrs Evans was such a shock to all of us because she was not this meek, mild, blah, blah, blah person. Any view of God which eliminates judgment and his hatred of sin in the interest of an emasculated doctrine of sentimental affection finds no support in the strong and virile realism of the apocalypse. Interesting. Right. They don't want they don't want this strong man on the on the horse coming in. No, no, no. They'll overturn all our systems. No, no. Me be meek and mild so we can twist you around our little finger. And and this is why they're trying to emasculate everything and get rid of that. No, thank you. It's important whether you're male or female and it doesn't matter. You've got to have that strength this is a jesus we can't control here we see jesus as someone who demands not only our attention but also our submission and then this is um remember that he does it all in righteousness the wars which he wages are from no principle and by ambition lust of power or extension of conquest and dominion They are righteous in their principle and in their object. And this is perhaps why, perhaps what no earthly potentate could ever say. And that's Clark. Because the thugs that are out to rule the world, they're not in righteousness. It's all ambition, lust of power, extension of conquest. And then this is Spurgeon. Jesus is the only king who always wars in this fashion. There have been brilliant exceptions of the general rule, but war is usually as deceitful as it is bloody, and the words of diplomatists are a mass of lies. It seems impossible that men should deliberate about peace and war without straightway forgetting the meaning of words 
and the bonds of honesty. War still seems to be a piece of business in which truth would be out of place. It is a matter so accursed that falsehood is there most at home, and righteousness quits the plain. But as for our king, it is righteousness that he doth and make war. Christ's kingdom needs no deception. The plainest speech and the clearest truth, these are the weapons of our warfare. And then Spurgeon again. His eyes were like flame of like a flame of fire. Why are they like flames of fire? Why? First, to discern the secrets of all hearts. There are no secrets here that Christ does not see. There is no lewd thought. There is no unbelieving skepticism that Christ does not read. There is no hypocrisy, no formalism, no deceit that he does not scan as easily as a man reads a page in a book. His eyes are like a flame of fire to read us through and through and know us to our inmost soul. And then it talks about his word. His mouth goes as a sharp sword. Five times in the book of Revelation, John emphasizes that Jesus' sword comes out of his mouth. <laughs> so, King of King and Lord of Lords. It's so, it's so thrilling, this warfare and what it is. And we should all know it. And we should all not be deceived by the thugs who are trying to do other types of warfare. Um, and the warfare, you know, the, the wonderful thing about it is there's nothing about it that's personal. It's not a threat to the reality of anybody. It's only a threat to false beliefs. And if people feel threatened by it, well, that's just a sign that they're being handled by false beliefs. And if they would recognize the blessing in the warfare, they would change instead of attacking the messenger. But we shouldn't fear being a messenger. I mean, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> it hurts sometimes. In fact, it often hurts. But if it's done in righteousness, as Jesus showed us, it, it is a great blessing, not only for us, but for everybody around us that hears it. There was a movie we all loved called Pale Rider, the Clint Eastwood movie. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's, it's, a, it's a take on this. You know, he comes into town, you know, Clint Eastwood, and it's a town that has all these slug thugs in it, and he, he gets rid of them all, right? He exterminates them, and it's very soul-satisfying. <laughs> well, it is, because, you know, somewhere early in the movie, uh, he reveals that he's a preacher. Yeah, he's a preacher. No, that's right. And, and it yeah. turns, you know, and it turns out that he's uh, he's had some tough experiences in the past. People thought that they had killed him. Thugs thought that they had killed him, and they were scared to death that he was he was still alive. That sort of thing. So anyway, <laughs> so a, a good Clint Eastwood. <laughs> yes, uh, I wanted to comment on what you said, Mary, about meek and mild. Now, meek can be kind of done two different ways, like it's good to be meek, to be humble, but then there's also meek is weak, right? So 
Uh, and I think that's what's intended on this, on meek and mild, right? So being manipulated, okay? So uh, this to me is a characteristic of the Boston church. Its members are meek and mild and manipulated. <laughs> and we know at Plainfield, uh, we need to be more like we we're talking about the rider on the white horse, right? So we're tough. Right. That's exactly right, and that's what we've learned to be. And that be a, Mrs. Eddie instructs us: be a terror to error. Thank you. And and, and Florence, wasn't it you had a definition of meekness, right? Yeah, the water. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love it. Go ahead. Is the meekness that allows God to use you the way He intends to use you? In other words, he can bend you. Um, it's like, okay, the water that takes the shape from what it could aim to. Mm-hmm. So, is it something to meekness? That does not mean um, timidity or anything like that. That's meant a lot to me. <clears throat> and Florence has the article Meekness and Restoration on our website that talks about it. Yeah, very mm-hmm. good. Um, and Mrs. Eddy refers to you know, Jesus as humble and mighty in the same sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you're used, let, let your submission to be God, to the Christ, you become mighty as, as, as he was, as the rider on the white horse. And that, you mentioned like the virility. I remembered in uh, Watches, Prayers, and Arguments given by Mrs. Eddy. She says, my manhood takes care of my womanhood, defends, protects, and supports her. My joy is defended and protected by my courage. My love is protected and defended by my understanding, by the strength of my scientific understanding, which is omnipotence. I am never undefended, and my womanhood cherishes my manhood. She goes on, but I love that. That is beautiful, and that, that is the answer to this gender thing going on. Yeah. That's thank you. It's beautiful. Right. right. We we are all complete in 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 knowing who we are as God's image and Yes. I had a couple of things from the red book I wanted to share. Oh thank you. Time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um it's on page one thirty seven. Also I wanted to say real quick that the watch on Thursday just fit exactly in what you were saying with the uh it um readings you had about the righteousness truth and and i just think it's amazing how these things just come together uh, but anyways uh, mrs and in the red book page 137 uh, mrs eddie uh has given some bible lessons and sermonettes and these are notes from a student and this is on revelation 20 i'm not going to read it all because there's a lot here and i if you want to go there I'll, I'll post it too, so it'll be on our website. Uh, but there's some notes in here that really help me understand Revelation, so I just wanted to read a couple. So first, she talks of uh, these are in order in Revelation 20, and she's uh, re- making reference to the verses like one, two, three, and four. So the very first thing she writes is quote, "Science and health is the angel sent down from heaven, malicious animal." Magnetism is the bottomless pit, and science and health gives us the key to it. It unlocks the mystery of ages 
and its declarations of truth are the chain which bind that old serpent the devil for a thousand years. That is, it reduces sin, sickness, and death to a unit of nothingness. And then she says, verse 3, quote, unity of good is the seal that was put upon the devil and Satan, for its teachings make it impossible for him to no longer deceive the nations. I thought that was very beautiful. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there's more, and then I want to go to verse 7. I just picked a few. Uh, uh, says that that which bound him, Satan, was the scientific statement of being. Mm -hmm. And then we go down a little farther to chapter verses 8 and 10. And Mrs. And Eddie writes, but the saints meet each Gog and Magog, or statement of malicious animal magnetism, with the denial of error and the declaration of love, which is the fire that comes down from God out of heaven. It is only as Satan is bound and then loosed, and, and each saint is compelled to meet every statement of the air that the army of evil is devoured, and the devil that deceived is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. It is in the constant handling of malicious animal magnetism that the dragon and the serpent and the devil or Satan is tormented forever and forever. And then the last one was verse 11. The constant handling of malicious animal magnetism enables the student of divine science to discern the great white throne of pure good, and him that sets upon it is love, for whose face the heaven and earth, a mortal mind, the beliefs of good and evil flee away, and no place is found for them, for they are not. End quote. And there's some even more. But, what pages are those? Uh, 137 to 139. Thank you. Yes, and there's a lot more. It's really good. Wow. Very good. It was amazing. Well, it was fantastic. The Red Book, Herbert Eustace. Yeah, all these really, new sources. Uh, people have really delivered and brought some good stuff. They sure Bible have. Bible study today, so thank you. Yes. Also, could I add one more? Um, at the very end of Crabster's mm -hmm. At the very end of Krauser's book, he has a personal application of the lessons of the apocalypse. And it's only a couple of pages, but I think it's very helpful, too. I mean, he really just sums it up right about the whole, what this is all about. Because, um, yeah, it's just, it's just very, very helpful. So I, I wanted to recommend that one, too. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I looked up that word brimstone, too, the fire brimstone and that you know when it burns i guess it really smells it's like sulfur sulfur <laughs> and, it, and it is in the core of the earth so just this idea you're, you're burning in a very stinky place <laughs> which I, I guess i hadn't thought about before i didn't know i didn't know what brimstone was i've always read about brimstone not only hot, but stinky. <laughs> it's pretty well, that's bad different now i know that well, I'm so grateful for all the explanations because I've often wondered about a bottomless pit. I don't know about you guys. Every time I've dug a hole, it always had a bottom. But 
this whole idea of a bottomless pit seems like it's an impossibility. And the explanation here was that it proved the nothingness of evil. Yeah. Right. In other words, it's an impossibility. Yeah. Right. And that's what Mrs. Eddy mm. says about the whole mortal belief, the whole mortal dream, right? An enigma, a problem without a solution, a bottomless pit. Yeah, and that's why when you get into studying the Adam dream, all the things, horrible things that seem to be going on in the world, don't, because it's a bottomless pit. It'll only really depress you and make you think you have to live in a safe house or something. <laughs> so don't don't go there. Study your textbook, your Bible, your prose works. Stay with the truth. You need to be informed, but not so informed that you're sinking. I have something that Carrie said I thought would be good to uh, end with if we're getting there. It's an article from a journal from 1886 entitled A Good Work is Never Lost. And it refers to the Book of Life, right? Which is in Revelation. Mm-hmm. So is there anything more, Tom, you wanted to say? Or no, it's good. It's good? Yeah. Anybody else? Up. Can't let Gary read it. Oh, okay. Where is it? You can start there. It's the whole thing, but it's 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 not all that long, but it's it's really beautiful. Okay, from the uh, Book of Life. When Jesus said unto them, "Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me." The good work which Mary wrought upon Jesus at Bethany by anointing him for his burial is not the only one which shall live forever. The everlasting memorial of her simple faith, kept alive and tenderly cherished in a wicked world, is a promise that no act of duty shall ever be forgotten before God, or ever lose its power to do good. Every purpose and every effort of right doing shall have its record in the book of life, and its influence shall be kept alive to guide and to bless to instruct and to save, as long as the world shall stand. Good, by its very nature, is immortal. The humblest and poorest of the disciples of Jesus can impel waves of blessings that shall deepen and widen as they forever flow. The silent, teachable, trusting look with which Mary watched the countenance and caught the words of Jesus is still preaching to millions. The world is indeed full of hurry, of violence, and of conflict, and it may seem to us a waste of breath to speak gentle words in the face of the whirlwind of strife. And yet, in such a world, God has promised that his gentleness shall make his people great. Calmness and the self-possession of a right purpose and a pure heart disarm opposition, and win more than violence. The rudest nature which would hurl back threatening and rebuke with fierce words of wrath may be mastered and melted into penitence and love by a single look, like that which Jesus turned upon Peter. You need not wait for great occasions You need not ask for extraordinary abilities. You need not have a thought what the world would think of you. 
Only let your daily walk be a living testimony unto Jesus, and God will keep that testimony in the world, widening and deepening and intensifying in power, as long as the gospel shall be preached for the salvation of men. In the service of Christ, effort is success, and a right purpose is victory. And no faithful laborer can fail to find many among the host of the redeemed who will call him blessed. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. End quote. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You know, if I heard that right, right purpose is victory. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because when we think about, or when I was thinking about in the Revelation, is you have uh, Satan and the first beast and the second beast, and then, uh, uh, you know, with the receiving the marks and all that sort of stuff, and then you have the rider on the white horse and all that. It seems like there's a time sequence to this. Um, but if right purpose is victory, that means victory is ever present. Yes. Exactly. That's beautiful. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, that's sort of the yin and the yang, the rider on the white horse, but then also this <clears throat> gentleness too. That, and as as Jeremy said too, both both encompass everything: the love, the compassion, as well as the strength and the and the ability to be tough when need be. Right. Love has many facets, but they are all. They and they all come out when they are needed. Yes. And every circumstance requires a different aspect of love. And like the New England writer says, we're not victims, we're victors. Exactly. Yeah. That's what Tom has been saying. We are blessed. <laughs> we are, we are blessed. We are blessed. Yes. Well, thank you, Thomas. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.